Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Uh, we hope that all of you are safe and uh, keeping yourself healthy. We are uh, going to go ahead and open class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we are living in very portentous times, and we um, are just keeping our hearts and minds and uh, eyes open for your leading. We ask that you will direct what's happening in our lives, our, our families, our, our nation, and also our ministry, that uh, you will use the events currently to help people ask the, the more important questions, the questions about eternal life, and that you can have uh, your agents and friends on the scene in the communities around the world to bring truths that will bring hearts to you. Ultimately, we ask that your will will also be done in the events that are transpiring with our leaders that uh, decisions we made that will be in accordance with your will and things will unfold for your ultimate eternal plan we pray in your holy name amen so we're starting a new quarter today and the title of the study guide is how to interpret scripture and if we look at the introduction to the study guide we're going to read the first three paragraphs and it says as seventh Adventists, we are protestants which means that we believe in sola scriptura the Bible alone is the sole authoritative foundation of our faith and doctrines. This is especially relevant in the last days. As Ellen White said, God will have a people upon the earth to maintain the Bible, and the Bible only as the standard of all doctrine and basis of all reforms. Of course, we are not unique among Protestants in claiming the Bible, and the Bible alone is the foundation of our faith, even though many who make that claim believe in such things as Sunday as the New Testament replacement for the Seventh-day Sabbath, the immortality of the soul, eternal torment and hell for the lost, and even secret rapture in which Jesus quietly and surreptitiously uh, returns to the earth and snatches away the saved while everyone else is left wondering how those people could have disappeared. In other words, just having the Bible and claiming to believe it is one thing, as important as that is. But as the proliferation of false doctrines, all supposedly derived from Scripture, reveals, we need to know how to interpret the Bible correctly as well. And so, as we look at this, they emphasize the idea of sola scriptura. And the argument, the lesson in many Protestants take is that today what this means is that the scripture is to be used alone, by itself, without consideration of other threads of evidence to form our doctrines. But this is not actually what the term meant to the Protestant reformers who coined it, nor how it was used by them. In fact, there were five solas. And let's examine the other four solas to see if it gives us insight in what sola scriptura actually meant to the reformers who coined the term. Here are the other four solas. Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Solus Christus or solo Christo, by Christ or through Christ alone. And soli dio gloria, glory to God alone. So do these other solas mean that it is only by these alone? Or are these set up specifically against other ideas that are being excluded? For instance, by faith alone rather than by faith plus works to earn salvation. By grace alone rather than by grace plus human merit. By Christ alone rather than by Christ plus, plus church sacraments. Glory to God alone rather than glory to God plus humankind or the church. So, for instance, does faith alone mean without grace or without Christ? Of course it does not. 
does Christ alone mean without the Holy Spirit working in our heart? Of course, it does not. So do you see how these other solas are not about them exclusively being the only element in our salvation, but excluding other things that had tried to merge themselves with those elements that didn't belong? So, with that in mind, what do you think sola scriptura meant to the reformers? It would be that our doctrinal truths come from Scripture, not from Scripture plus church tradition or church council meetings or papal rulings. That was the point of Sola Scriptura. Does that mean that our doctrines were not to come from Scripture plus other God-given revelations? No, that's not what what it meant. But this is how it's used today. So when science, for instance, when science shows us that a balanced, whole food, vegetarian diet is healthier than a diet that includes meat, should we reject the scientific evidence because God gave Israel laws on how to prepare meat and the New Testament church never recommended vegetarianism? So we can't find vegetarianism taught in scripture. Should we then reject the scientific evidence of the health, uh, health benefits of it? Well, I don't think anybody would want to do that. But if we take sola scriptura alone, we shouldn't make a doctrine on a vegetarian lifestyle being healthy because it's not taught in Scripture. This is the silliness of what happens when you say sola scriptura means only from Scripture are our doctrines to be made. The lesson points out that many people who claim to believe in Scripture alone have false beliefs. But what error in how sola scriptura is understood has contributed to this? And the error is believing that sola scriptura should means that scripture is used by itself, divorced or separated from science and nature, and from how our real life experiences work. And when we decouple scripture from the reality in which we live, then we can twist the scripture or interpret the scripture to say anything, even if it's inconsistent with God's design, his laws, how the universe runs, or our own life experiences. And that's why we have over 40, now it's over 40,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible support them. Because you can take a text here and a text there and make it say almost anything. But the scripture, if we use the scripture, it teaches that God has actually given three separate threads of evidence that are to be harmonized. And scripture teaches that God reveals himself through his first book, and when I say first, the first book that he created to reveal things about himself, and that was nature. God made the earth. Let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Then he made the, the plants, and he made the animals. So nature was the first thing that God made on planet earth that reveals himself. And what does the Bible say? Well, Job who according to the first chapter of Job is a righteous man, God telling us that he is righteous and perfect in all his ways, Job says the following, Ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds of the air and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish and sea inform you. Fish of the sea inform you. Bible teaches us that we can learn truths about God through nature. Or Psalms 19.1. The heaven declares the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. But you know, you guys know I like Romans one twenty. Paul writing says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So if you believe scripture, 
then you have to embrace that God reveals himself in nature, and our understanding of Scripture needs to be harmonized with the revelations of God in nature. That's God's first book, nature. But God's second book is human life experiences, the experiences of life. Because after God made Adam and Eve, he told them to be fruitful, multiply, to tend the garden, to experience him, to walk in the cool of the day. And it wasn't until many thousands of years later that people began to write scripture. And the psalm says, Psalms 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. What's that mean, taste and see the Lord is good? It means experience me. Don't just hear about me. Interact with me. Experience me. And then when Thomas was having his crisis of faith, Jesus says to him, John twenty twenty seven, put put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it at my side. Stop doubting and believe. Believe, same word for faith. Have faith. Based on what? His experience. Notice Jesus didn't quote a Bible verse to him. He told him experience reality. And based on this reality, form a belief. Form a, a faith in me based on what you've experienced. And then the third book that God has given us after nature, after experience, is Scripture. And according to one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Scripture is not the only book to inform us and to base our truths and doctrines upon, but must be foundational. And that means that our understanding of science and experience must harmonize with Scripture. But it reverses true. Our understanding of Scripture must also harmonize with science and experience. It goes both directions. And so a couple of quotes from Christ's Object Lessons 125. The great storehouse of truth is the Word of God. The written Word the book of nature, and the book of experience in God's dealing with human life. Note it, three books. Here are the treasures from which Christ's workers are to draw. In the search after truth, they are to depend upon God, upon, not upon human intelligences. The great man whose wisdom is foolishness with, with God. So we don't depend on human intelligence, we depend on God. Through his own appointed channels, the Lord will impart a knowledge of himself to every seeker. And those channels are the written word, the book of nature, and the book of experience. This is another one. It's education, page 77. Rightly understood both, excuse me, education, page 130. Rightly understood, the revelations of science and the experiences of life are in harmony with the testimony of Scripture to the constant working of God in nature. And then education, 77. Jesus followed the divine plan of education. The schools of his time, with their magnifying of things small and their belittling of things great, he did not seek. I wonder if we have any schools that do that today. Magnify the relevant things and ignore the relevant things. Continue with the quote. His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources, from useful work the study of the scriptures and of nature and from the experiences of life, God's lesson books, full of instruction for all who bring to them the willing hand, the, eye, the seeing eye, and the understanding heart. Oh, how many don't bring a willing um, uh, mind or hand or an understanding heart? And then one more quote, Christ Object Lesson 17. The scripture says, All these things Jesus spoke unto them, unto the multitudes, in parables that it might be fulfilled he's, he, that he spoke by, as the prophets unto them by parables. Um, na natural things were the medium for the spiritual. 
The things of nature and the life experience of his hearers were connected with the truths of the written word. Leading thus from the natural to the spiritual kingdom, Christ's parables are linked in the chain of truth that unites man with God and earth with heaven. See, when we separate the three threads and we say, oh no, we're going to do science all by itself, it frequently leads to godlessness. Experience all by itself leads to mysticism or even other types of self-centered and and um, survival-driven types of beliefs, exploiting others. Scripture by itself, though, leads to confusion. Over 40,000 now different Christian groups arguing amongst themselves. And the reason this happens is because they don't require their interpretations of Scripture to be anchored in the laws of nature and how life actually works. You got a question? Yeah, I got a question. Go ahead. Um, This is from David. I think he's in Canada. What happens when science has not caught up with biblical inspiration? So, yes, so there are many things both in science for there's no biblical explanation for. For instance, we don't have anything in the Bible that teaches us about nuclear physics. Right. Okay? But there are things in Scripture, the Bible, that uh, science doesn't really talk about. For instance, the revelations of the uh, of Daniel that we just went through, uh, of the kingdoms that come and the history that was happening there. There's nothing in science that tells us about that history. So there are elements, but when we talk about the principles, particularly the nature and character of God and how he works, then you will find that there is a harmony there because God's principles are not only taught in Scripture, but they're... Um, They're the principles upon which reality is constructed to operate, and those are the big principles. So it would be interesting if somebody had um, some Bible text that they think, they may be good examples of where, well, that's not really, that's just a historical fact. You know, uh, Jacob dug his well in a certain place. That's in the Bible. Okay, well, you can actually go and you you can go to that place and see if there's a well, and you can check that out, okay? So you can confirm that with a life experience. Um... But there may not be a scientific law that governs that. The fourth paragraph of the lesson makes another common error in interpreting Scripture. And this one's quite profound to me. It was quite disturbing to me to find this in a quarterly that was purporting to teach us how to interpret Scripture. And the fourth paragraph reads, In short, Scripture is the, is the foundational source of the truths that we believe and proclaim to the world. Or as the Bible itself said, quoting Scripture, quote, all scripture is given by God, is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. End quote. Second Timothy 3.16. And then continuing with the quarterly. All scripture, of course, means all scripture. Even the scripture that we might not like, that might step on our toes, and that, to use contemporary parlance, might not be politically correct. And what is the error made here in this paragraph that's a dangerous error? And that is the way they have chosen to interpret the scripture. Okay, They have read it, all scripture, and this is the version they've used, all scripture, here's the quote, is given by inspiration of God, unquote. Well, let's think about that. Is it? What about the apocryphal books? Esdras, Tobit, Judith. Ecclesiasticus and others. Do we consider those inspired by God? We say, well, they're not in the Bible. Well, here are the versions of the Bible that include them. The Gutenberg Bible, the Luther Bible, the Clementine Vulgate, and the King James Version of the Bible, as it was originally produced, included. It was only later that some Protestants cut it out, but the original King James, 1611, had the apocryphal books. Should we include them as 
Scripture. What about the pseudepigraphal books? The Maccabees, the Ethiop- Ethiopic Book of Enoch, Jubilees, Baruch. Should we include those? What about the Book of Mormon? Should we include that? What about the Koran? Should we include that? Aren't these scriptures? They may not be our scriptures, but they're scriptures. If we take the text as they read it, all scripture is inspired by God. Is it? No, this is a mistranslation. The way it should read is all scripture inspired by God is useful. Now that's true. All scripture inspired by God is useful, but not all scripture is inspired by God. And thus, in the remedy, it reads this way. For all scripture inspired by God is beneficial for teaching, redirecting, correcting, and training to promote character transformation so that God's ambassadors may be exceptionally competent in application of the remedy and in every other good work. I'm quite disturbed, I will just tell you, that a quarterly purported to teach us how to interpret scripture missed that. So once we've determined that the text does mean all scriptures that God inspired is useful, and not that all scripture is inspired, can we still then, can we accept the idea that we should use all of the inspired scriptures and not just pick and choose a little? Even those that we find might be politically incorrect to us. What do you think the authors meant by this idea that there might be scriptures that are today politically incorrect? I looked ahead at the title for the rest of the quarterly, and there's at least two lessons on creation. Were they suggesting perhaps it's politically incorrect to teach creation? We should teach maybe accept evolutionary theories. Were they maybe alluding to ideas along those lines? Um, If we accept the creation worldview of the Bible, does that have impact on other doctrines that might be considered politically incorrect? Were Were the authors wanting us to think about God's design for human relationships? Where they want us to think about the Sabbath. Where they wanted to think about our bodies as the spirit temple and how we might want, not want to put certain substances in them in this day and age when states are legalizing marijuana. What about a belief in God, the belief, the belief in God itself? Is believing in God considered politically incorrect? Well, I don't know. Nancy Pelosi uh, said recently she prays for the president every day. Um, she didn't get much of a hit for saying that. Uh, I assumed he was praying to God. Um, but then again, Tim Tebow seemed to get some negative feedback for his public um, you know, professions of faith and statements of faith in God. He didn't seem to be too supported by the political elite. Why is public witness for God sometimes considered politically incorrect? I'll leave that with you to, to wrestle out. Let's go. Now we're going to start Sabbath lesson. We just got through the introduction. And the memory text is, Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. What does this text mean? In the, in the remedy paraphrase, it, it reads this way. Your word is the lamp that guides my steps, the light that directs my way. How does God's word, the scripture, guide our steps and direct our paths or ways? Is it through studying the Bible to find the right list of rules? The do's and the don'ts. The code book of deeds to be done and sins to be shunned. Is that the Bible? 
Or does the Bible enlighten our minds to reality, to our creator, his design, his methods, the protocols of life? And understanding this enlightens us on wisdom on what choices to make and what paths to go because these are paths of life and health rather than the paths of destruction. The life is filled with choices. Russell, yes. If you think about the function of a lamp or a light, when, when do you use a lamp? You use it when it's dark. Yeah. So the, the scripture functions as a means to illuminate a pathway so you don't walk off a cliff or run into a tree. Oh, I love this because what is... It grows darkness. There's lots of scriptural references. You tie it in with we're living in darkness. Yep, Isaiah. Yep, darkness covers the people. Gross darkness, the people. That's right. And it's darkness about God, his kingdom, his reality. And what is that darkness? It's really related to, in in my view, um, how we understand his law imperialism. Um, For those of you who didn't check our blog out this past week, um, the blog was on viruses, what they are, where they come from, a biblical worldview. You might want to check that out. But as I was researching for that blog, I went through probably 15 Bible commentaries and Bible dictionaries of a wide variety of Christian um, um, denominational groups. And uh, particularly examining Romans chapter 8, where Paul says all nature groans under the weight of sin. I take the position that because of sin, God's nature has been damaged by sin, and Satan, after Adam's sin, has the access to be able to uh, mess and muck around with God's, and viruses are not part of God's original creation. They're a consequence of sin. But it was very interesting that all, every Bible commentary except one that I found and the one that I found that, that had a view, I, I quoted in the, uh, in the article, and you can see that, that one. But all the others uh, take the view that the reason nature groans under the weight of sin is because God cursed it. God is using his power to make nature suffer. Okay, This is darkness, people. Darkness covers the, um, the earth. Gross darkness covers the people. God is not the source of pain, suffering, sin. He's not using power to hurt his creation. This is a consequence of sin doing this. Um, and, and God is working to heal and restore it. But when you have an imperial law construct, and then you've broken a rule, then, then you see the authoritarian God inflicting this upon people. When we come back to see and worship our creator, him who made we see that sin breaks his design and results in all of these things and then even further there's an enemy afoot who is sowing seeds of decay into the system those are viruses viruses are seeds of decay that damage and destroy and uh, so um, there's the darkness and when you said the word of God it leads us back to the truth of who God is and will dispel those ideas I love that yes hey I have um, two people that mention um Graham Maxwell and what he often said, here a little, there a little, but what about the rest? And Gary asks, isn't vegetarianism more tribal knowledge and not a doctrine? Shouldn't we shouldn't we look at not just our proof text? Um, can you please comment on doctrine versus tribal knowledge? So doctrine simply just means teaching. It's just a word that means teaching. And my point regarding that was, If we are followers of God's truth, as revelation and truth comes to us, then we want to follow the truth. And the vegetarian lifestyle has been revealed to us as being the healthiest lifestyle if you have access to the various 
vegetarian food sources. Now, it's true that you might live in a place like Somalia during a famine and, 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 uh, and um, the uh, UN brings in chicken and rice and that's your only food options. That's much better than just eating the chickens, much better than just eating the rice. So it, it's not a, a um, proscription that you are only allowed to eat these things. It is a teaching of truth. Vegetarianism is healthier than a meat diet. That's truth. Okay, so I don't think that's tribalism. I think that's a enlightened human being coming back to God's knowledge as we move towards the return of a new heaven and a new earth. And what do you think we're going to eat in a new heaven and a new earth? Do you think we'll have slaughterhouses and be meat eaters in a new heaven and a new earth? I don't think so. I don't think so. So I think that that, that is a very sound and, and righteous teaching, but it's not a righteous teaching that you can find proven from Scripture because the Scripture doesn't um, say this is a requirement and this is the way you must eat. Um, yes, another question? Yes, another question from John in Georgia. How does nature and experience contradict what some teach as the rapture? So I'll have to think about that my initial reflex reaction is the rapture would be one of those teachings that is theoretical in future. And since it's theoretical in future, we have no evidence um, from nature um, to um, reject reject that. But if you get down in the weeds of it, you may find elements that it is built upon that would be contradicted by um, some of the uh, design laws. But I'd have to get down in the weeds of that. Um, but but that is a theoretical, and, and it's hard to disprove anything that's theoretical and future. This is why within science there's all these theories that can't be disproven because they're theoretical, and you don't have the actual evidence to disprove them. They remain theoretical. And so I think the rapture is a theory um, based on certain interpretations of Scripture, um, but there isn't necessarily experience to deny that. Okay. The Bible lights our mind to reality, to our Creator, His designs, His methods, His protocols. Okay, and this is what what the Bible was doing. We're supposed to harmonize that with nature. Um, life is filled with choices. How do you make choices in life? Are you act? Are you an active decision maker, or a passive decision maker? Do you examine the evidences, weigh them out, uh, uh, consider the uh, pros and the cons, prayerfully ask God for wisdom, enlightenment, consider God's truths as revealed in Scripture, science, experience, and then make an informed choice, and then evaluate that choice as evidence comes back and update your decision-making and make a new choice if you have to as new evidence comes? Or are, are you one of those people who wait for life events to just drag you through life, waiting for you to be forced to have to make a decision because of the circumstances around you? Or are you one of those people who... Wait for the consensus of the peer group, the the church group, or the or the uh, or the uh, class group to come to a conclusion. You just kind of follow along, or or are you one of those people who look to a leader, a pastor, a pope, a, a president, somebody else to make the decision? And you just follow along. I have uh, seen so many, so many that allow others to do their thinking for them. I've seen this in church leaders. I know of a conference presidents of conference presidents who have uh, been given some of our materials. And rather than study for themselves, research for themselves, weigh out for themselves, they ship them off to a theologian and ask the theologian to review them for them and give them their opinion on whether this is orthodoxy or not orthodoxy. Is such an approach, using God's word as a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, if you approach it that way. 
No, it removes God's word from the one who is uh, approaching this and puts a human in place of God's word. You've now surrendered your thinking to some person you've allowed to believe in your mind has better knowledge than you, and they're going to tell you the answer. Here's a quote from one of the founders of the SDA Church. comes from the 1888 materials, page 834. We say decidedly, decidedly, Every minister of Jesus Christ must bind himself to the source, what's the capital S, of all light. That would be Jesus. The source of all light and power. And he must not follow in the shadow of another living man. Because there is, there is Christ to whom we must become attached. And he should not bind his heart to any human being and let man do his thinking for him. Remember, the Word of God is the light into a feet. Jesus is the Word made flesh. We, when we study the Word, we're coming into contact with the divine. It transforms and enlightens us. When we put a man between us and the Word to tell us, well, what does it mean for us? Now we have put a filter between us. Maybe even if they tell us the truth, that's great. But we still aren't experiencing God directly anymore. Keep on with the quote. He is not filling his position in society or in the world if he simply accepts what his Father has said and what his um, and what his father or some great men or good man in past generations has done, and sinks himself his his individuality in them. So, in other words, looking to some thought leader, some church leader, some family. I've seen that too. Well, my grandmother used to teach this, so that's what I was taught. It's not good. Continue with the quote: Some who think that they preach the gospel are preaching other men's ideas. Through some means, they have come to the decision that it is no part of a minister's calling or duty to think diligently and prayerfully. He accepts that other men have what other men have taught without asserting his individuality. Do we see this in organized churches today? That the pastors and the priests look to the church authority, the church central office, to form their doctrines, and they just simply teach the creeds of the church or the doctrines of the church. And when questions come, they just ship it up the line to the theological research institutes of whatever their church is to give them the answer. Continue on with the quote. Now Satan has his hand in all this work to narrow down the work of God. Wow, what do you think that means? Seriously, when we no longer go to Scripture... But we go to the commentaries. We go to the theological research institutes. We go to the theologians. We go to the conference leaders. We go to the pastors, some other person, to tell us what the scripture means. We are putting an obstacle between us and the spirit of God and the word of God to actually enlighten us. Continue with the quote. Ministers of Jesus Christ are to be constantly receiving light from the source, again, capital S, of all light. They are not to be simply receivers of other men's thoughts they themselves not plowing deep into the minds of truth if a minister is not a worker himself digging for the truth as for the hidden treasures to find the precious jewels of truth he is forfeiting his god-given privileges he is not to put any human mind any human intelligence between his soul and god's Woo, this is quite strong stuff boy you've probably never seen that happen have you I've seen it all the time. There is to come no authority from human minds that will in the least degree interpose between him and God's authority to lead, to guide, and to dictate. Boy, I can't tell you how much uh, that I've had uh, church leaders come and talk about the church authority. And I go, and, and you should submit to what the church is saying because he's your pastor. 
And I go, wait a second. What about the Bible? But he's the pastor. Continue with the quote. The ministers of Christ should gather up every ray of light, every jot of strength and illumination. Now, now this is interesting. Look at the balance here. The, the ministers of Christ should gather up every ray of light, every jot of strength and illumination from other minds whom God has blessed. But that is not enough. They must go to the Fountainhead, capital F, for themselves. God has given men reasoning minds, and he will not hold them guiltless if they trust in man or make flesh their arm. He wants you individually to come to him, to draw from him, to use the ability God gives to understand the living oracles. If one man can see light in examining the scriptures, so may every true Christian have the right to read, to examine, to search the scripture with unbiased interest and gather light therefrom. Now this is quite profound. And these principles, I, I, and this is what we say in Come and Reason all the time, we are not here to tell you what to think. You have your own individuality, your own mind, your own God-given reasoning abilities, and we are here to stimulate you, to motivate you, to inspire you, to go and dig and research and confirm with your own study. Yes. Bob from Texas, he said, how can we be certain that the books of the Bible that we think are inspired are in fact inspired and they're the right ones? And how do we know we shouldn't include the others? That will be what we will be discussing in other lessons coming down the road, specifically that question. So we're not even going to, we're going to postpone that to future lessons because there's whole lessons on that. Why were these books included? How do we know they're reliable and so forth? Great question. But consider th- this, the point that's being made of doing it and thinking for yourself rather than taking the answers from the teacher. If you were a math student and you had a teacher, they would show you how to do problems, but wouldn't you then have to begin understanding why this is true and then begin working problems for yourself so that you actually learn how to do math? Or do you prefer to go to a class where the teacher just tells you, here's all the answers, and you memorize the answers? See, this is what much of Christianity has become. Christianity has become a... a, a, belief system and where you go to your particular church and they give you a creed list, a a fundamental belief list and they tell you here are the Bible proof texts and here's why you should believe it and you memorize the right beliefs because the system has told you this is what you should believe and so you know the answers. But they don't teach you how to work the problem to figure out why that's the answer oftentimes. I find the uh, second paragraph interesting and encouraging that we can be confident we have an accurate transcript of the New Testament. It says, uh, yes, second paragraph, it says, there are more than 24,600 extant New Testament manuscripts from the first four centuries after Christ. Think it, 24,600 of these available in the first four centuries. Of Plato's original manuscript, there are seven. Herodias, eight. Homer's Iliad, slightly more than 263 copies. Hence, we have a powerful confirming evidence of the integrity of the New Testament scriptures. I I think that's really good. We can have confidence that what was written there is what was written at the new time, and it's an accurate transcript of what was written. That's a different question whether we can trust it or not, but we have confidence those New Testament books are what was written at that time. That's really good to know. I found that very interesting and confirming. Sunday's lesson. That's us to read Deuteronomy 32, 45 to 47, which reads, When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of the law. 
They are not just to, they are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. What does the text mean? Is Moses telling the people that if they keep the right rules, they will do well, but if they break the rules, they will have problems? Is it about rule keeping? Well, there's some truth in that. If a parent has a rule that their children are brush their teeth and they do it just because they obey the rules and that's all they know, there's benefit and they will avoid decay and that's good. There's certain truth in that. Okay? But is that ultimately the purpose of Scripture? Is it to never understand any reasons why, just to do or die? Is that, is that, the, is that the, the purpose? No, it's not. God wants us to grow up, to understand, to be his friends, to participate because it makes sense, to do right because it is right. That's why we do it, and that's pleasing to God. It pleases him when we do it because it makes sense. A parent is much more pleased with a child who grows up to brush their teeth because they want to because it makes sense to them than the child grumbles and goes into the bathroom and does it because it's a rule. It talks about it being written on the heart. What does it mean to have something written on the heart? Can a person obey rules without it being written on the heart? How many young people obey school rules because they're being monitored and they'll get in trouble if they don't, but in their heart, they're thinking of all the ways they can break the rules without getting caught. Big difference about rule-keeping than having it on the heart. So, this goes beyond rule-keeping. It goes to heart transformation. In the New Testament, this is the New Covenant, when God says He'll write His law in our hearts and minds. What does that actually mean? And is the New Covenant writing law on the heart and mind any different than what Moses was saying here? No, it's exactly the same thing. Putting God's original design for life in our hearts. That's what he's trying to do, to heal and fix the damage that sin has caused. How does the law get written on the heart? It's also metaphorically circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. The lesson points out that Jesus is the Word made flesh. What does that mean? And Jesus tells us that we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is metaphor. What does it mean? As flesh is taken in, a piece of the sacrificial lamb was eaten by the priest, that piece of meat would be broken down to molecules and become part of the building blocks of the body. As we take in the word of Christ, who is the truth, we take in the truth, it becomes building blocks to our understanding, our ideas, our beliefs. And they then help when us, dispel the lies and bring healing to our minds and give us strength and understanding reality and lead us back to a knowledge of God, which wins us to trust. And then we open the heart and we receive the indwelling spirit who takes the blood, which is the life is in the blood, the life of Christ. And we get a new heart and right spirit. So this is how it works. Truth dispels lies, which wins to trust, and then we experience the dwelling spirit that gives us a new heart, the, the, the life of Christ. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The lesson points out in the last paragraph that Jesus is the focus and aim of all Scripture. I think this is well said. Well said. Absolutely true. And this gives us a key to understanding Scripture. We must understand its purpose. What is the central theme of Scripture? The Old Testament scripture's primary theme after the creation of humankind 
is the plan of salvation, the conflict between good and evil, and the promised seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head. This is the primary theme. And if we don't read all of the scripture with that theme in mind in the Old, particularly Old Testament, we may miss what's really actually happening and why things are happening the way they are. Satan is working to try to stop Jesus from being our Messiah. God is working to keep open the avenue for Messiah to come and save his creation. So how can we accurately interpret scripture? Let's go through some simple principles of scriptural interpretation. First thing is to rightly understand the purpose of scripture. And many people will try to use scripture for something it wasn't intended for. Doesn't mean it doesn't have wisdom that can extend beyond its original purpose because it has lots of wisdom and, and, and we can, but we need to really understand its purpose. And its purpose is not a math book. It's not a physics book. It's not a book of medicine. It's not a book of chemistry. That's not its purpose. Its primary purpose is the truth about God, the problem of sin, and the plan of salvation. And it contains all the truths necessary for people to experience salvation. That's its primary purpose. But understanding the purpose is still not enough. We must also, when we read it, actually have a desire to comprehend the meaning, not merely know the words. There are many people who study the scripture who have no belief in God. They study it as a historical book. They study it as a, uh, they study it to find reasons to poke fun at people who believe in the Bible. You can study the scripture without any intention or desire to know the truths of it. And if you have no desire to know the truth of it, your heart isn't open to the spirit of truth, then, then when you read it, you will only be further darkened in your mind. So I, I love this quote um, from the book Christ Object Lessons, page 59. It says, Merely to hear or to read the word of Scripture is not enough. He who desires to be profited by the Scriptures must meditate upon the truth that has been presented to him. By earnest attention and prayerful thought, he must learn the meaning of the words of truth and drink deep of the spirit of the holy oracles. You see, this is a key to true Bible study. Understanding what it's trying to communicate to you, truth about God, the problem of sin, God's plan to save and heal us. This is the me- And then have a real desire to know the meaning of what's being presented, not just simply know the words. And this goes to how we then translate or paraphrase the Bible. When I did the remedy paraphrase, this was a key principle I um, uh, applied. What is the meaning? Not simply what are the words. And sometimes I used words that were different than the original words. They didn't translate directly over. I used different words. And some people would read that. Why did you not use this word? Because the word here is this word. And I said, well, what was the meaning? What was the meaning? And that's the key for me, getting as accurately as you can the true meaning of what's being communicated there. And that, in my view... With the lexicons that we have for Hebrew and Greek these days, you don't have to be a Hebrew and Greek expert to be able to do this. But one of the things, you, in my view, you must know is you must know the truth of God's character. You must know the truth of his design laws. And you must know the truth of the great controversy. And if you don't know those three truths, you might be a language expert, but you will artificially weave in imperial legal views. We've got human law constructs will come in through the translations. And that's what you see in most of the translations. All this artificial, dictatorial, authoritarian stuff about God being translated in. So here's some basic guidelines to help us interpret Scripture. Number one, 
we must understand the overall context, not just the immediate context. When you talk to Bible scholars, they always talk about the context. Most of the time they're referring about the historic context, the context of what was happening and what it meant to the person who wrote it. And there's truth in that. We need to understand that. But to me, the bigger truth is the overall context of Scripture, which means the great controversy, the grand central theme that runs through it all. And there is a grand central theme that runs through all of Scripture. And that is the, the cosmic theme. And that is the more critical piece to keep in mind, even as we're understanding the local context. We need to understand the battle between Christ and Satan is not a physical battle. That's the second point. It's a battle of ideas, of concepts, of beliefs, seeking to win hearts and minds. God's primary weapons are truth, love, and freedom. And Satan's weapons are lies, fear-based self-centeredness or selfishness, and coercion. And this is one of the mistakes many of the Bible translators make is when they put God in the role of using Satan's methods or weapons. They will translate things that way. Not third, third principle. The Bible is the revelation of the truth about God. His character, methods, plan to send Jesus to save humankind and exposes Satan as the source of evil, pain, and death. This is the, the, the theme. Third, uh, fourth, uh, throughout the Old Testament times, the cosmic conflict is waged on earth, and God is working to fulfill his promise to bring the, the seed. And thus we can see where the focus is, why we're focusing on, after the, after the flood, Abraham's family, because it's through Abraham's family, but not just all of his family, as Isaac, and not just his children, but Jacob, and not just Jacob, but down through, through the, uh, um, through the, um, various children, ultimately to Judah at the end, because ten of the tribes are gone, it's, it's Judah, Benjamin, and some of the Levites left. This we focus because it narrow, keeps narrowing down the branch till we get to the branch, capital B, as Zechariah says, the branch that is the branch of the human family that becomes our Messiah. And that's why we're not having a lot about you know Africans or, or Asians in Scripture, not because God doesn't love them, but because that's not where the battle between Christ and Satan is being fought. It's being fought in this branch of the human family. The Old Testament records real people. We've got to remember real people who did real things. That's it. I think it's historically accurate. But of all those billions of lives that happened throughout human history, only a few are recorded. And they're recorded because they're not only historically true, but they teach things about the larger cosmic conflict. And, uh, and we've gone through many of those. And we may go through some more again later in the lesson. And then some spe- specific rules for Bible um, interpreting Bible prophecy. And this is um, prophetic passage, not historical passages now. If one part of the passage of the prophecy is symbolic or metaphorical, then the rest is symbolic or metaphorical unless clear reasons are given to take it as literal. One of the problems in a lot of Bible interpretation is they'll take the middle of a, of, a ver- of a passage and interpret part of it metaphorically and part of it literally. Yes. Yes, we have a question from Farrell in Tennessee. He says, I'm committed to studying the Bible and having it interpret itself to rely on the Holy Spirit to teach me. But how can I know which version of the Bible is best and most accurate? So, there really is no best or most accurate. Um, This is where the best thing that I recommend is to have three, four, five, six different English versions and read the verse out of all of them, and you'll get the nuance. When I was doing the uh, New Testament paraphrase, and then when I did the Psalms, it was even worse. Old Testament is even worse, because anybody who's bilingual can tell you this. When you translate, typically, many times, there is more than one option and more than one word, uh, and and the context will will, uh, play in it. 
And sometimes there's multiple words. In places in Hebrew, there's a, a single Hebrew word that has over a hundred English translations in the Bible. The same Hebrew word is, is translated to a hundred different English words in our current Bible. And so um, there's wide variety of options there. And so you can get the flavor, the nuance, if you... Um, read a, a, a variety of English versions. It'll kind of give you some insight. As I was doing the Psalms, though, you will. Uh, I would encourage you to, to check the Remedy as well, um, both Remedy New Testament and the Remedy Psalms. So I was doing the Psalms, um, and, and when I say the Old Testament is worse, it's because the Old Testament, is the, the ancient Hebrew is so much further removed from any recent times, and we have the, that, that um, there are many words that all of the experts say, meaning unknown. Meaning unknown. That happens frequently in the in the Hebrew lexicons. Meaning uncertain, and so uh, that means they're filling it in with their best guess. Okay, the the Greek were closer to the New Testament times, and so the Greek is a little bit more tight and uh, a little bit, but it still is open to interpretation. So I would tell people to use a wide variety of English versions and compare them, and uh, then look for the meaning. But you will still find some of the meanings are wrong. I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Um, most of the ones will be um, of the New Testament, not quite all, but most of them will have the text that we read in the introduction that all Scripture is inspired of God rather than all Scripture inspired by God is useful. So most of them get that wrong. Most of them will include, I don't remember the passage right off of my my head, the, the text for it, but when Jesus said that I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me, Okay, in the in the Greek, there that's how it reads. I will draw all into me, but essentially every New Testament um, puts inserts a word that's not in the Greek. They insert the word men. Will draw all men unto me? No, the the Greek is I will draw all unto me. He is drawing, and, it's, and you put that together with Colossians. All things in heaven and on earth are reconciled to Christ the cross. He, the angels are being drawn to Christ because of what He has done as well. And so, um, even comparing many of the English versions, you will find little errors creeping in. But particularly the errors that I find most difficult, uh, most distressing, are the ones that make God authoritarian and, and legalistic. Good question. So, if one part of the symbolic and the other part symbolic, the Bible should be used to interpret itself. So, I'll use uh, Bible definitions for symbols before you go outside the Bible to define the symbols. Uh, general theme is the conflict between Christ and Satan. God's, uh, God's character of love never changes. Therefore, interpretations should never result in God being represented with a character other than love. If, if an interpretation is God being something other, than, then it's wrong. God's law never changes. Therefore, interpretation should always be harmonized with God's law of love, and we should uh, use the integrative evidence-based approach. Monday's lesson. The lesson points out that the Bible is written by many different people over many years, some of whom were eyewitnesses to the events. And this gives us the opportunity to consider how inspiration works. How is the Bible inspired? How is it different from other books like the Quran or the Book of Mormon? Well, the Book of Mormon and Quran were written by one person, each, purported to be writing a transcript of writings brought to them by angels. The Bible um, is written by many people who were actually witnesses to the events that they wrote, or were given wisdom and insight by God to write the wisdom that they were given. Further, the Bible has many different authors over many um, centuries of time, yet there's a perfect harmony of the scripture. And the fact that all the different authors have the same har harmonic through it is another evidence of its divine origin. But the question, how does inspiration work? And what I mean specifically, do we believe in word inspiration or thought inspiration? 
Word inspiration is the idea that the very words of Scripture are inspired. This can actually lead to certain forms of magical thinking. Like if you get the right word and say it in the right way, so we can't say Jesus, we must say Yahweh, for instance, or we must say um, Yahshua instead of uh, instead of Jesus, because that's the right word. We have to have the right word. Word is inspired. If we believe that, it can lead to some magical thinking. Uh, or do we believe in thought inspiration, that God did not give them the words, he gave them the ideas, the concepts, the understanding, the wisdom, and the Bible writers chose the words they were familiar with to convey the ideas that were inspired. That's what we believe, that, I, that the ideas are what inspired. God inspired the individuals with truth. The individuals chose the words to, to communicate that truth. And because we believe that, it is therefore legitimate to replace a Greek or Hebrew word with English ones as long as it's true to the idea and you get the meaning right. If, in fact, it's word inspiration and those words are special or have power, then we really can only use the original words. We can't translate them. We all must learn Greek and Hebrew. So I think we reject word inspiration, and that's why the paraphrases are legitimate as long as they stay true to the meaning. Is the power in Scripture, the power from Scripture, in knowing the words of Scripture or knowing the meaning, which ultimately leads to knowing God? This is where the power is. Can a person know the words of Scripture and even the meaning correctly of Scripture, both, and still not know God? Consider the Jewish leaders when Herod asked, where is the Messiah to be born? They searched the scriptures, and they came back in Bethlehem. They knew the scripture, and they got the meaning right. Messiah's going to be, but they still didn't know God. Because they worked against him, ultimately, for his crucifixion. So, in Wednesday, we're going to jump to Wednesday's lesson. The Bible is unique, in the first paragraph it says, The Bible is unique when compared to other holy books, because it constitutes a his- in his- it was constituted in history meaning that the Bible is not merely a philosophical thoughts of human beings like Confucius or Buddha, but it records God's acts in history as they progress toward a specific goal. In the, in the case of the Bible, the goals are the promised Messiah and the second coming of Jesus. This, the progression is unique to the Judeo-Christian faith in contrast with cyclic views of many other world religions from ancient Egypt to modern Eastern religions. So... The, so other religions have writings that are philosophical, like Buddhism and Confucianism, and, and then other writings were said to have been revealed to a single person by an angel, Islam, Mormonism. But the Bible is unique in that it was written in history by the people who were there at that time, not sometime later writing about the history by some angel that comes and tells them about it. Further, the Bible has philosophies in, within it. It has poetry. It has prophecy. It has revelation. And it has history. So it is a very unique book compared to all the other types of scriptures uh, in the earth. But the Bible is not only a history book that records the real historical lives, it does so in a way that reveals the plan of salvation. And here are some examples. I won't go into details of this one because I've mentioned it so many times before, but the seven miracle births that are recorded in scripture are all metaphors of Christ. Joseph was a metaphor for Christ as he was sold into slavery but stays loyal and is exalted to deliver the people 
his people from starvation. Moses did not think equality with Pharaoh was something to be grasped, okay? But instead took the role of a servant and identified with the slaves, ultimately uh, freeing the people from bondage. So Moses is a metaphor for Christ. Nehemiah and Ezra build up the walls, repair the breach, um, three different releases. This is uh, the metaphor of the end time when God has a people who come out of Babylon, Babylon the confused system of Christianity, uh, and come out of Babylon to call people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in the midst to repair the breach in the law so that we see God's law as his design protocols for life and then have our temples cleansed. So this is a metaphor for this end time message. And then Daniel in the lion's den, betrayed but stayed faithful, protected by God in the face of a roaring lion. And at the last day, Satan is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may be, uh, devour. And we're told that God's people will be betrayed into the hands of, 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 of the powers, but we will have God there to protect us from that. Enoch and Elijah, object lessons, real people, but object lessons for those who will be translated into heaven when Jesus comes. So the Bible, real historic people doing real historic things. And then we're going to close with Thursday's lesson, kind of go through this really fast. Um, and uh, first paragraph says, in 621 B.C., when Josiah was about 25 years of age, and it goes on to say they rediscovered the Scripture, and rediscovering the Scripture led to Reformation. And has this ever happened at any other time? Rediscovering Scripture leads to Reformation. Well, that, in fact, what happened in the Protestant Reformation. During the Dark Ages, the Scriptures were locked away from the people, and Martin Luther's 95 Thesis wasn't really what what, what started the, the Reformation or what... what progressed it and caused it to really expand it was when he translated the bible into the language of the people and then with his questions and they had the bible as their key to understanding that's really what promoted the reformation um but has the christian world retained bible knowledge since luther's time or has the christian world have the form of christianity without power because they're really not biblically literate anymore an article in christianity today reports the following Around 30% of, first starts with British, then comes America. British is also a Christian nation, Britain. Around 30% of British parents don't know, at, don't know Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, or the Good Samaritan are in the Bible. 30%. To make matters worse, 27% of British adults think Superman is or might have been a Bible story. More than one in three, more than 30% think the same thing about Harry Potter. 30% of Britons think Harry Potter's a Bible story. And more than half, 54% of Britons believe The Hunger Games is or might be a story from the Bible. What? Yeah. More than half of evangelicals, 59%, believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a personal being. May the force be with you. In contrast to the Orthodox Bible teaching of the Trinity of the three persons of the Godhead. As a whole, Americans, including many Christians, hold unbiblical views on hell, sin, salvation, Jesus, humanity, and the Bible itself. That's all from Christianity today. And uh, as America and Western societies have become less and less biblically literate or more biblically illiterate, has society suffered? So... There's a place for Bible reformation 
here today. And this is part of the Advent message that at the end of time, a remnant people, people who still are true to the scriptures, will call people back to the truth of who God is to worship the creator God, not back to a certain creed, but back to the knowledge of God who built reality to operate in harmony with his nature and character of love and the principles of his kingdom, which are transforming. And that group of people are to stand up and give a message to the world today that makes sense, that's rational because it's built in reality and it's how our life experiences actually work, harmonized all with Scripture. Let's go ahead and close with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our Creator God, a God of love, who has uh, revealed truth to us in Scripture, but also in nature and real-life experience. We ask for the Spirit of truth to not only enlighten our minds to see the truth, but to indwell us and fill us with the principles and character of Christ, that we can be new creatures in you. Open opportunities for us today to be able to share this life-changing message in the world around us at this time when people are seeking answers, that you might come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.